Magazines and Monsters, episode 33, The Witching Hour, number one, from 1969. Man, you come right out of a comic book. Hey, everybody, Billy D, a.k.a. Doc Strange, back with another episode of the show. And this time around, I'm welcoming a new guest to the show. I know I promised a lot of new guests coming in uh, 2022, and I was really looking forward to this one because he actually uh, is part of a podcast that I listen to on a bi-weekly basis and love it. So uh, everybody, welcome to the show, Max from the Weird Warriors podcast. How are you, Max? Yeah, I'm doing good. Um, uh, you know, I'm psyched to be here. Um and speaking of podcasts that people regularly listen to, you're on like four of mine. So one good turn deserves four more, you know? <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, there's a really good bunch of us that kind of, you know, uh, prowl around Twitter and have a good time that podcast or blog or just even hang out and have a good time on there, you know? And it's a, a really good time. I talk about it every time almost I podcast anymore, but it's really true, you know? I think Twitter can get a bad rap because there are some maniacs on there, but there's a lot of cool, nice, respectful people as well. And, you know, you definitely uh, fall into that group. Hey, thanks, man. I mean, the block button is a wonderful thing <laughs> and cleans up my feed like you wouldn't believe. But the uh, the comic podcast community, for the most part, is is just um, it, it's like this oasis on on Twitter, or the Internet in general. I mean, I'm sure there's there's bad elements out there that do comic podcasts, but like I just hinted at, I'm I'm pretty free with the old uh, block button, so mm -hmm. I don't tolerate them for long. And I and and then I have all these great people to hang out with and listen to, and you know, and and benefit from their company and their expertise. So uh, I get to trick myself into feeling like I'm I'm part of a pretty cool crew, you know? <laughs> yeah, block mute and then that crazy little option you can go into to even mute certain words is really, really handy. I enjoy that. It, it works pretty good. <laughs> oh, yeah. So mm -hmm. here we are, man. You know, like like you said, I I, I um I co-host a, a little show called the Weird Warriors podcast. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, it's me and my buddy, Rich, who is off uh, this week or next. He's going to do a little guest spot with Paul Hicks. Mm. <laughs> he's going to talk, uh, talk about Garth NS War comics. So I'm letting those two have their, have their, uh, have their meetings so they can get down because I, I dabble. But those, you know, those two are, are like the experts. So I'm going to let them have their their powwow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had Paul on my show last year because he's a Doom Patrol expert. He is a Doom Patrol podcast. So I had him on to talk about the Doom Patrol's first appearance because I'm a Doom Patrol noob and I just barely started reading them. So I like got to have him on and have him uh, educate me on how cool the Doom Patrol is. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to if you're going to get in on the ground floor there's no better person than than him or garth to show you around mm -hmm. yeah for sure so yeah i always look forward to your show with uh, rich you know it's really cool you guys talk about war comics uh, a lot of the weird war tales which is super super cool and then you even just uh, not too long ago uh, had an episode come out of a more modern one um was that the or was it in the 2000s or was it the late 90s somewhere in there it was uh, like mid '90s four issue mm. miniseries where they brought back Weird War Tales, and they did it for a bunch of other titles at the same time around that around that era. But yeah, we call those special missions when we go off and cover a book other than Weird War Tales, and you know we'll do that. We'll you know we'll 
that could be almost any book as long as it's horror or war themed and rich picks all those whatever you know just to give him a break because i love weird war tales and he mostly collected that series almost out of a sense of obligation (laughs) at first because he's like i collect war comics and then he discovered he liked it after he was buying runs of the issues so I, I told him we'll do special missions now and then where we can just go off and do anything as long as it fits the theme. Yeah, so. which is cool. Yeah, absolutely, man. Love it. Yeah, that was a good episode because I haven't read that, but, you know, it definitely sounds really cool the way you guys made it sound. So whether it really is, I would think it is or not, I don't know. But it's always cool to hear somebody else talk about stuff because there have been comics that I was just like kind of like, you know lukewarm on but i've heard people podcast about them and i thought well they made it sound way better than it is <laughs> yeah we did this just because we wanted to do something i came up with the idea of doing a show and i thought what would rich and i both like to talk about and we figured oh we'll do this and it'll entertain us and you know, maybe like two other people will listen <laughs> and we found out that you know we got a decent amount of downloads i don't know how to figure any of this stuff out but more people than i would have thought and then i you know, as as you've been a victim of, I almost immediately like regret picking that title sometimes because it's it's pretty expensive in the back issue bins these days, as we were just talking about. Mm-hmm. And unlike the book we're going to talk about today, it's not been added to DC Universe Infinite, so people can just pay their membership fee and check it out. Yeah, for some reason, the app, yeah, like really, really thin on war books. And then they're starting to get more and more in the last year or two uh, with the uh, horror books. But yeah, the war books are super, super thin unless it's like, you know, a, uh, a Sergeant Rock type character that, you know, is in Brave and the Bold or something like that. But to the actual war titles, yeah, they're very, very thin on the app. So hopefully they'll uh, remedy that soon because those are some really good books. Yeah, I don't I, I couldn't imagine it's like a royalties issue because most of the people who worked on these old war comics aren't with us anymore. You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it's not that problem. But there's there is some hesitation to adding uh, the war genre on here. But nevertheless, uh, you know, Rich and I do not have time to pick another series because um, the only reason that show is still going is I partnered with Rich to do it because I am notoriously riddled with ADD and I love to start things and then I wander off to another thing. Gotcha. So Rich is the opposite and I've known him since 1989 and that was the first thing he said to me is like, you know, if you start this with me, you're going to have to finish it. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I know, I know it's the only reason I'm even considering it. Cause I don't want to do like eight episodes of a podcast and then disappear, you know? Yeah, for real. Hey, you'd have a lot of uh, cranky people if you guys did disappear anytime soon, because, yeah, it's really it's a really good show. You guys have a really great format. and It's nice to hear, you know, two different perspectives on the show as well, instead of two guys that just think exactly alike about everything. It's really cool to hear two different perspectives. That's probably my favorite part about the show. Oh, yeah. Rich and I have been disagreeing on stuff for like a <laughs> year or so. You know, we're good at it. <laughs> well, anyway, you and I are going to talk about a cool comic today. Uh, it's a, a horror comic. So uh, The Witching Hour, number one from 1969, which is a super, super cool cover here by uh, Nick Hardy, a guy that some people don't really think of when, uh, you know, they think horror comics. But he did do quite a few covers and then you know, some uh, interior stories in books as well. And uh, I really love, love this cover. I would love to own this book. But like you said, I'm reading it on the app because I can't even imagine what this book costs in halfway decent shape. But 
What did you think of this cover? I mean, Cardi is obviously a legend when it comes to uh, to, to cover art and to art in general, but especially cover art. The design of this thing is perfect. Like even the use of color helps with the perspective. There's mm. there's a witch crouching on this you know tower, grabbing the point of this tower in the foreground, and she and even the black cat at the base of the tower, <laughs> all in kind of like a greenish light and just black highlights. And then down on the street, it's all in this purple mist, except for this one villager that's holding a lantern and it's stock still like he just heard something. Then he's got <laughs> a little bit of light around him. And then there's mist in the distance, you know, as you go further away towards this castle far away, it just draws you in. And then my favorite touch is the title is actually a giant word balloon. It says it's 12 o'clock. The witching hour. And then the, the the tail of the word balloon goes all the way down to this villager who's holding the lamp. Mm-hmm. It's just it's just beautiful and with very simple, almost only using four or five colors, it pulls you in and has a sense of depth. And there would be no walking past this thing. Mm, no way. Yeah, this is an excellent cover. You can't really do much better than this. I mean, I know they had some people at DC at the time that were a little more, you know, uh uh, lauded like you know maybe Neil Adams or whoever but I don't know that he could have done any better on this cover to be quite honest with you if he was given this idea this is just yeah Nick Hardy he's one of those guys that I just I love he's definitely in like my, my top five DC you know artists you know favorite artists of all time love him I also love too how you know you were mentioning how you know there's a little village there and there's a castle like in the background and there's almost like a street between all these houses there's a little cat running around there uh, in between the first couple of houses there too it's like, what? Look at that little cat there. He's running in the middle of the street there in the light. I'm like, whoa. Yeah, it is a great touch. And I think um, it, it's almost, it almost shows off that compulsion of Cardi's because he's so good at design that he mm-hmm. felt that little road was too much empty space. So he just said, we'll put another little cat right there <laughs> just to break yeah. it up. Yeah, well, yeah, that's really super cool. And I just think, oh, this uh, – this villager's toast. He's going to, the witch is going to do something awful to him. So yeah, her creeping over, like leering at him, <laughs> holding on to that point. Super, super cool cover. And like you said too, it's like literally like four or five colors in the entire cover. I mean, especially if you take away the, you know, the witching hour, uh, word balloon there, it literally is like four colors, you know, maybe three. That's it. It's super cool. Yep, and flat colors too. Nothing fancy, not, not mm. a lot of gradations, just just really flat colors, but it's beautiful. Yeah, absolutely. So we get some framing sequences um, with this one. And at the beginning and end, in the beginning, it's, it's I, I looked up credits on this on a couple different websites. And the beginning of the story, or I'm sorry, the framing sequence says Alex Toth art. Okay, it's, I think it says writer and art, which is cool. And I think, yeah, okay, absolutely, that looks like his work. But then it's interesting when you go to the bookend on the back, you know, the, the last framing sequence before the end of the book. A couple of websites said that Neil Adams said he did that, and it does look slightly different. Did you notice anything with that? No, not in particular. But um, let me uh, when we get to that, I'll take a look at yeah. it. Yeah. I do understand, like, I've read a lot of history books and interviews about that, you know, just the history of the industry and everything. And people pitching in at random to do different parts of a book was extremely commonplace. And mm-hmm. credits were pretty slippery. So it absolutely could be, or Neil 
Neil's memory also could be a little weighted towards his own experience <laughs> in his mind, you know, like either way. But when we get to it, I'll take a close look at the style of that, uh, that last uh, framing sequence part. Yeah. Until I saw someone credit him, I didn't even notice it. And then when I went back and kind of looked it over, I thought it does seem a little different, but you know, we know Neil, like you said, maybe his memory is failing him a little bit or, you know, we know he has an ego the size of Saturn. So, you know, maybe he's just like, I think that looks like my work. <laughs> yeah, but to to, to like uh, go to that point on his ego, he he could possibly have taken the job to finish the book. Yeah. And, oh, yeah. And he was and he was good at imitating other people's styles. So he might have done it in a toth style mm-hmm. and not taken the credit, moved on. And and then later on said, oh, yeah, I finished that for toth because mm-hmm. he could change his style. There's definitely that Neil Adams look. But there is evidence of him drawing other things just to get a job done, and you would never know it's him. So we'll see. Yeah, and you figure this was early on in his career anyway, too. So he doesn't really, you know, he doesn't look like the same Neil Adams in the late 60s as he did in, you know, the mid-80s either. Nobody's, everybody's style changes, you know, at least a little bit and stuff like that. But yeah, this was really cool. I love the uh, the witches. There's... <laughs> Three witches. Two of them are sisters, and one's a stepsister. There's uh, Mordred, Mildred, and then uh, stepsister Cynthia. And Cynthia's like the younger, hip kind of witch, and the other two are the older curmudgeons. And, uh, you know, they don't like her hip new ways, and uh, they don't think she's cutting it to be a witch. So that was pretty funny. I like that. Yeah, I like the whole concept of of the framing sequence, that, that, that they're not just horror hosts whose heads sort of float in the corner like it, like uh, the specter of death does in weird war tales in most issues mm-hmm. these people have names they have personalities they have an internal struggle they're pretty funny and because like you've hinted at this is around the late 60s or so you have the generation gap being played up mm-hmm. you know and uh cynthia is the hip mod groovy chick you know and and shades of shades of um of bob haney with the way they're writing <laughs> dialogue in here to contrast with her older stepsisters. And it, it's just a treat, man. Like, I'm so glad that this book happened when it did. Because if this was like an 80s book, Cynthia would be a valley girl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I don't know how I would handle that. But this is wonderful. Yeah, this is her dialogue is like, like you said, Haney, uh, Teen Titans dialogue. That's what kind of dialogue she has in this, these two, these sequences. And then the one story that she introduces to there. And it's funny, too. And then, of course, they, you know, uh, show this uh, monster type creature, Igor, coming up to this little castle where they all live and stuff like that. But, you know, they're all like saying, oh, we know better. You know, basically what they're trying to do is say that Cynthia is not a good witch and they know, uh, you know, they're almost going to prove it because they know better, you know, ghost stories than she does. And she's just like, yeah, sure you do. So then, you know, it says, let the judge be you, you know, at the last one there. So they're going to each tell a story, basically. And, you know, they're going to let the, the comic readers judge who's the best, you know, witch and host. Yeah, perfect. Uh, that last panel where they're literally pointing out at the reader, all three of them, and mm-hmm. the two older stepsisters are in the, in the background in the orange flickering light of the cauldron, and Cynthia's up front and, you know, is really, like, in the actual light, like, in, in just all four colors, but even the way that her eyes are drawn in the panel above and in that last mm. panel, there's a little bit of a cat's eye effect going on to let you know she's not normal either, that there is something witchy about her. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that to me, when I look at that last page, that last you know panel, their half page, whatever you want to say that. When I think of Alex Toth, that's the kind of Toth I think of. I don't know. I guess it's just probably most of the stuff I've seen of his is more supernatural horror stuff. So that's that's just like, yep, that is all Toth right there. I can just look at that. And, you know, even if nobody would have told me it was Toth, I would have been able to guess it. And I'm not very good at doing that, like seeing panels and pages. Oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. Like, yeah, the you know, the big ones like Kirby and stuff like that, I can say that about. But not some of the other guys, you know. Uh, especially from the DC side of the street. So, but yeah, that's very Toth and very awesome. Love it. Yeah, I came into Toth backwards. So every time I see his art, I expect Johnny Quest to show up. Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. What What was that? Comico or somebody like that? Well, they did the book much later on. They they did that comic series, I believe, in the 90s. Um, but he yeah. actually worked on designing the animated series. The television show. Yeah, he did a bunch of them. Didn't he do like Fantastic Four or two and other ones? He he did sheets for that. He did Super Friends. Wow. Uh, he um I believe worked on Thundar the Barbarian with Kirby. So mm-hmm. he lot, he bounced in and out of animation and comics because he was extremely volatile. He mm-hmm. had a temper. And I have this book um the, the animated life or something of Alex Toth. Uh, it's called like Genius, and it's all about just that part of his career, him being in animation, and cool. it keeps having to go. And here he went back to comics because. You know, he exploded at somebody. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Hey, hey, you know what? It happens to the best of us. And hey, when you can draw like he does, you can bounce around and piss people off because you know you're going to get work. I mean, let's be honest. Oh, yeah. Everyone always took him back. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's like one of those things like, yeah, he's kind of a pisser to work with, but he can really draw and people like his work. So bring him in. But, oh, man, these stories, they're not so much like, you know, crazy scary or anything like that. They're borderline more ludicrous, but it kind of is still cool and funny, and I like them. So the first one, Save the Last Dance for me. And (laughs) the first page here I love because it has this guy that looks like he's got to be, I would say, at least in his 60s. And it's, you know, he's tap dancing all over the the first panel there while, uh, you know, the the one witch is uh, doing the intro here, which is hilarious. I love that panel. What do you think of that panel? (laughs) Oh, it, it's it's bread and butter for me. I, I love like you talked about, you know, we were, we were talking about Carmine Infantino earlier, and I've always been a sucker for the kind of comic art that shows multiple poses leading a figure in action in one panel. And this guy tap dancing across the panel, the body language is perfect. He looks so joyful. Like he's having the time of his life and it's just body language telling you that, but you can see that this guy who we're going to get to know in the story and isn't that great a person mm-hmm. just looks like, like he has the happiness of a child while he's dancing. So he has that one redeeming factor and it's all on display in these tiny little figures up top. It's beautiful. Yeah. Super, super cool. So yeah, his name is Thurgood Trapley, he millionaire and jackass. And <laughs> he has an inventor is in his employ. Uh, that has a time machine, but it can only be used once. And he uses it to bring back a machine back to the past that he believes will rejuvenate his dancing career. And it does, but there is a uh, an interesting uh, catch and side effect here. So uh, overall, what did you think of this story? Oh, it's pure fun. I mean, I'm I'm kind of a, a kind of a minor connoisseur of cheesy old horror comics. Um, you know, I got into this stuff with the reprints of Charlton comics, like the ghost of Dr. Graves and those modern comics bags and stuff. And then from there into house of mystery later on, it's creepy and eerie. So this stuff mm. is my wheelhouse. I love corny 
horror stories with, you know, heavy handed moralizing and ridiculous characters and twist endings. Because as long as you just embrace it, you know, and I mean by you, I mean the creative team, you can't mm-hmm. help but smile even while someone's, you know, being cursed or transformed or, you know, turns out to be a vampire or whatever it is. It's just fun. And this is a prime example of that kind of story for me. Like you said, it's completely ridiculous that the logic holes are big enough to drive the whiz wagon through, but you know, they need to be there. <laughs> and it, it, this is, you know, it's not a Kirby book, but it has that Kirby ethos of don't ask, just buy it. Gas pedals glued to the floor. Let's go. We only got a few pages. You know, it's, it was fun. Mm-hmm. So I'm no Whovian, but, does this machine look like a Dalek or am I, you know, going crazy here? <laughs> oh, they absolutely put that on purpose. Like yeah. that, that thing is, it's a Dalek as much as like, if it were a little bit earlier, it would have been Roger the robot, you know, because mm-hmm. comic artists have no shame, especially back in this period uh, when no one was paying attention of just lifting stuff for the most mm-hmm. part. So, cause they're cranking out pages, man. They're, they're they're gonna give themselves a little fun or at least a little ease of reference like i know what a dalek looks like and i'll change it just enough to not matter and off we go Mm -hmm. yeah i think they weren't especially back then they weren't worried about somebody coming after them really about rights issues and things like that especially likeness rights and in a comic book and yeah i think i did uh forget to mention this is alex uh, or i'm sorry this is denny o'neill writer and pat boyette is the artist and you were saying about uh charlton that's where i know that name from Oh, yeah. Pat Boya is one of the Charlton Mount Rushmore heads. Mm-hmm. He's he's just an incredible artist and storyteller, even in a story with this many word balloons crammed into it. And his kind of idiosyncratic panel design, the art still sings, still shines. There's there's no way to defeat a Pat Boyette page design, no matter what you want to do with it. I don't think Chris Claremont at his worst could ruin a Pat Boyette page, but, you know. That'd be something, <laughs> but it's it's just it's just fantastic work. His his talent for body language, his talent for framing a scene, just like I said, getting across a character just with a facial expression. Like you know what somebody's like the first time they show up. He's he's an excellent storyteller. Yeah, I think this is one of the best stories of his I've ever seen. Like I like some of his Charlton stuff. I have, and like you said, I think uh, it was in more of reprinted stuff that had come out, you know, earlier. And I got the stuff that came out later that reprinted the earlier stuff. But I most of the stuff that I've seen of his, the paper quality of the book is terrible. And they're like faded and kind of beat up. So I always kind of looked at his stuff like, yeah, it's decent. You know, like he's a, he's a good, you know, solid draftsman. But he's definitely not a, a top favorite of mine. But this story, I think, really, you know, shows how good of an artist he is. And then not only that, you know, it's, you know, on this uh, good reprinted, you know, if you want to call it that in a reproduction reproduction here on the, the, you know, DC infinite app, it looks really good. It like really looks great. It, you know, the colors pop, like you said, all the uh, characters look great in it. And I love that very last page where, you know, we find out that, yeah, he's rejuvenated his dancing career and the machine will not allow him to stop dancing. And he almost looks like he's turning into a zombie there. Yeah. Like for, to the point of Pat's art, as uh, Cindy Lauper once said in like a cover song of hers, money changes everything, right? Mm-hmm. So like Charlton was only making comics because they needed to keep their presses running at night, and they said do whatever you want. 
you know, so they got to use the cheapest paper <laughs> at night because if they ever stopped running these presses, they would break. That's the story that I've heard enough times from people that were there where I got to believe it because Charlton's day business was they did magazines like Hit Parader and stuff like that, like much yeah. more high profile compared to a Charlton comic. And they used the good paper on that stuff. So, yeah, ch super cheap paper is something Charlton's famous for. You're almost afraid to open those books. And I collect <laughs> horror comics. And they are, they are delicate when you find them. And then also Charlton paid the lowest rates in the business. But they had no editorial oversight. So people liked working for them because you could do whatever you wanted. But I got to think Pat was like, yeah, I'm earning like one-fourth per page what – dc or somebody would pay me so you get his version of a side gig art i think and it's still mm -hmm. really good but those two factors yeah that's that's how you see the pat boyette you're used to and mm -hmm. here you see pat when he's gonna be making some bank you know <laughs> <laughs> yeah for real like but yeah the fate of this guy he goes through all this effort you know gets a time machine built to <laughs> use for one purpose to to revive my dancing career. And then he ends up trapped by a robot that will never let him stop dancing. It's it's just a great tale of hubris and careful what you wish for. If you're a D&D &D nerd like me, I instantly thought of um yeah, there's an irresistible dance spell that <laughs> you know <laughs> that if you if you liked having fun when you played the game you would cast on the most ridiculous monster so you'd have this lumbering beast tap dancing <laughs> and you just walk past them you know so and there's there's a there's an old myth of someone putting on the shoes that won't let them stop dancing it's pretty mm -hmm. gruesome <laughs> when you read that <laughs> old fairy tale and this all tying that together for me just made this an incredibly good opening story. I was almost afraid for what the rest of the book was going to be populated with because they, for me, just hit the perfect you know, like old 60s, 70s horror story comic book note right here. Loved it. Yeah, it was pretty cool. So uh, any final thoughts on that one or are you good? I mean, you mentioned, um, you know, Pat's art and them bleeding away from an Alex Toth framing sequence. I feel like Pat's art here, Boyette's art, while it definitely has a different look to it, it's almost like Toth crossed with Jim Aparo in ways, especially when people get hit, there's a little explosion in the air. Mm -hmm. So I love that, but I do think we got a case of the framing sequence creeping in at the very last panel. That's Toth art. So he's drawing any intrusion of of the uh, framing sequence into the story. So th that page design, that final third page design left room for Toth to come back in. And just, it's just a beautiful piece of work. Uh, this is this is my template for a good horror comic anthology series right here. And I've never read an issue of this before we decided to cover, you know, this, this issue for, for my little guest spot here. And man, I, I got to... I'm just kicking myself for what I've always missed out on already. So that's my that's my vibe coming off the first story. Yeah, I have a couple of the later issues, like single issues that are, you know, beat to heck that I found probably somewhere on the cheap. But yeah, this this is the first time I was ever reading issue one. And I think they have, you know, maybe the first 10 or 12 or something like that on the app. So I'm actually going to gonna keep going and check out the rest of them because, yeah, they're pretty cool. And, you know, like we said, Alex Toth, here we go, writer and artist on uh, Eternal Hour. Uh, the next uh, installment here that the next witch tells the story about. And 
it's a pretty cool splash page. I like this one too. It's got a lot going on, but you know, very busy, but you know, it's got, you know, perspective shots and you know, these kids being nasty to some other kid and it's pretty cool. So what'd you think of this? Yeah, again, the the design sense here, you've got an increasing, you got a bunch of kids, like you said, on the left column of panels. There's five panels going down the left column and it's different. You know, I think it's a different kid, at least in the first three. And then it zooms in for a close up on the third kid's face. So it's very cinematic. It's almost designed like a roll of film mm -hmm. going down the left column. And then, you know, this man holding his head you know, being tormented by the kids like, no, no. And the top, top panel going across. And then you see the entire scene zoomed out and the bottom where he's standing at the bridge under a clock tower. He's standing at the edge of a, a bridge there. And the kids are all down in the street, teasing him again, very busy, but with Alex Toth at the wheel, it flows. You, you, you read everything in the right order. There are large word balloons with tons of letters in them but you don't feel crowded. You feel drawn in. You feel surrounded in a way like, like you're part of the scene. And that's his genius, I think. Yeah, he somehow he manages to draw things that I want to say not only nobody, other, nobody else does, no other artist does, and just throws a lot of different things into a page, a panel, and you know a story and makes it all work somehow. Not all artists can get away with that. They can you know do their... Their, what their strengths are through a whole story and it can look beautiful and cool and great and everything and you know tell a visual story but he somehow throws so many different elements into it but they all tell a good visual story and you know flow together nicely i think yeah i think even his lettering i'm pretty sure he does his own lettering because there's a mm -hmm. distinct style to when toth draws a book and the fact that the font he well if i can even call it that but the, the lettering style that he uses is nice to look at so mm -hmm. even when he loads a panel with giant word balloons, like on the second page, panel three, we got our guy here clinging to the cock or the clock tower. <laughs> and, uh, you know, almost the first third of the panel is filled with a giant word balloon. Now, if that was in, say, a Charlton book where a lot of the stuff was just typed in by infamous letterer A dot machine. <laughs> The letterer you'll find credited in a ton of Charlton books. That would be horrible to look at. Yeah. I mean, I love my Charlton books, man. But if you have a long stack of that A machine lettering, it can be a little weary on the eyes. But his stuff looks warm. It looks inviting. It's Lettering is an art form, and he is also good at that. So it doesn't matter if he fills a panel with words. It's still nice to look at. Yeah, he, he was a master. And like you said, maybe because he jumped around so much between animation and comics or something like that, he doesn't get the credit he's due. Or I should say maybe it's just his name isn't more of a mainstream name when you think of great comic book artists that kind of, you know, transcend the, you know, our little corner of the world of just comic books, like some of the other, you know, big names of the time. Because, you know, like I said, maybe he jumped around like that or something. I'm not sure what it is, but the guy definitely was awesome and should get more credit than he does like you know definitely like i said on, on the periphery not not just in nerd culture because you know pretty much everybody that's read any kind of comic you know from the mid 80s you know and backwards you know who the guy is and you've seen his work because like you said he's done so many different things but yeah look for his uh, name in the credits of a lot of animation too because you'll find him there like we talked about yeah i think the fact that you're starting to see these big coffee table books like that one i have on him uh, and his when his animation work being the focus, and there's a ton of other ones out there. I think 
one of the reasons might be is that most of the people that had to deal with him in person uh, aren't in charge of writing the books anymore. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, no one ever questioned his talent, but I don't think a lot of people like to think about him as a person back when he was in the industry. They were like, as soon as he left, they were like, okay, I need a break. You know, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> so he didn't get, you know, the, the, the support of his peers, I think. And he didn't care about it either. He, he no. knew he was good and he took off when he had had his fill of whatever it was that was, was getting under his skin. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I think when he left the office, people would take an Advil, but you know, that's <laughs> like you said, great artist. but yeah, this is, like you said, this is a cool story. It, it's, uh, you know, starts off with the children in the village all teasing this guy, uh, Turwit, because of his size, and he hides in the clock tower. Um, but then going forward, after he hides there and won't come back out, the clock always stops at midnight for a while, and years pass, and he never comes out. And, uh, you know, people in the village are all afraid to go in, but one day a man named Gustav says he'll go in and check out the clock tower, and, you know, the villages gather around uh, to see what's going to happen, and a scream comes from the tower, and it's a scream from this Gustav, but, you know, more men then enter, but none leave. And finally, an old man that had been uh, leaving food for him enters with a friend. And uh, they see it all who entered uh, have been turned into brass figures. So that's pretty neat. I wasn't expecting this ending. This was a really interesting ending. I was waiting for something uh, way more sinister, but that's probably my uh, horror mind uh, going too far. <laughs> Yeah, it was honestly a bit of a bewildering ending to me. I didn't know what they were setting up here. Like at one point, Turwick comes out and he's tossing rocks and, and, you know, construction material down at the people below. And then they go in and he's a figure of brass, too. So they're thinking he couldn't have even been the one to do that. And yet everyone's been transformed. I get it in that they've been cursed, but the meaning behind it or the... um you know, the, the like rationale behind the curse is kind of lost on me, you know, Mm -hmm. and and these stories normally are so like hit you right over the head with, Mm -hmm. with moral, like that first story that there's no way of missing it that I felt really thrown off by just the ending. The whole story was really enjoyable until we got to the brass statue part for me. And then I went, huh, I'm not really getting where this came from, but all right. You know, they, they all got cursed. They got what they deserved, but even Turwit was turned into brass. So, yeah, this was an interesting one. Again, maybe it was because Toth was the writer on this one. And, you know, he obviously was a, a more of an artist by trade, but, you know, sometimes I think when people cross over to do something else, sometimes they can write some really weird and interesting stuff. And I think he did that here, man. One of the pages that stands out to me is six. Again, there's word bubbles everywhere, but just this crowd, you know, of people there, like every face is different and I could just so much going on there. I really love that page. Yeah, even the light sources on everyone's face, they're different depending on their position in the crowd. Mm -hmm. And 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 like you said, word balloons everywhere, but that adds to the sense of you the reader being down in that crush of the crowd and just being assaulted by everyone's words and their presence. It's, it's genius. Again, they, they use that word about Toth and it's absolutely fitting. And I was just thinking about the end, the ending too. I feel like it's more of a fairy tale ending mm-hmm. and, and Turwit does say, I'm going into this tower and I'm never going to leave. I'm going to become a part of the tower. So maybe that's where he's coming from. These people enter 
and he not just him but anyone who enters is going to become a part of the tower forever yeah so, maybe there was some kind of curse on it or something he knew about you know and he knew that was going to happen but hey maybe he'd rather that than you know constantly being you know harassed by people so yeah kind of a sad thing if you think about it i'm, I'm being a debbie downer here <laughs> that's like a midas touch type fairy tale you know this twisted twisted around so that he curses himself and anyone who would come up to try to find him and torment him further but that you know it, it does invite you the reader to add a lot of that it's it's work we have to do you know <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's that kind of ending yeah even page seven is pretty nice too i mean there's some you know the top panel is you know completely in the dark basically except for someone holding a torch and there's a little bit of light you know shining on their clothing and then you know, next two panels, and it's, you know, again, they're just like a torch to light the way, and they're creeping around this clock tower, and uh, then there's, you know, the torch is almost like right in the face of the, you know, perspective of the, you know, camera or whatever, the front of the, the panel, and then we see the cogs of the wheel, and it looks like there's a, a shirt in there, like somebody got ground up in there. That's pretty gross. Yeah, Toth is... I love a good silhouette panel. It's it's just something I love when mm. I'm brave enough to toss one in there. And he has done some work in Weird War Tales. And every time he does, I'm the guy on the show who's going to wax poetic about the silhouette panel. So he got <laughs> one of Toth's like, signature, just amazing panels of just, like you said, just a silhouette outlined in the blue light of night. And even in that little abstracted form, everyone has different body language. You can see like people whispering to each other, huddled together for safety. The one guy with the light is standing alone. It's It's got character. It's got tone. It, it's got personality. And it's just a bunch of black ink. Yeah, it's really, again, he does a lot with very little. And to me, that's, uh, again, one of the other marks of a really good artist, really accomplished and like you said, you know, people will be like, oh, you know, refer to him as like a genius. And, you know, when you see things like this, it really, you know, really makes you believe like that's the case because not every artist and let's be honest, most artists couldn't do that. They would or they could try and it just would not come off as well. No, in, in no way. Like you look at any individual drawing of his and they're quite simple is the thing. He doesn't fill a person's face or an object with lines when he doesn't need to. Sometimes lines don't even connect. It's he just puts down what needs to be there and moves on. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 it shows just his confidence in the in the knowledge that he got it right. Yeah, absolutely. Again, he's he's one of those people that probably should get a lot more credit than he really does but you know we'll give him all the credit in the world when we talk about him that's for sure no once this episode gets out there man that that's it the public will know (laughs) (laughs) for sure (laughs) so any final thoughts on that story no i'm good with that one like i said it was a it was a mildly just like mildly disconcerting ending but it was so enjoyable it didn't matter and it was toth 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 so i was happy all the way through really Cool. Awesome. So this next one is really crazy. And uh, <laughs> this is one that, you know, you uh, wanted to talk about. So uh, how we uh, how are we looking here for uh, the perfect surf? <laughs> well, here we have it. As we mentioned, the entire issue, the three sisters have been having a storytelling contest. And now it is Cynthia's turn. It's the young hip stepsisters turn. And 
again, I got to read some of her dialogue on the opening page. <laughs> Cynthia's reclining on a rock over a beach where there's pounding surf. It's so high. It looks like a waterfall coming in. Like those people actually should be running terrified. Cause that's a tsunami right there. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, she's chilling, she's lounging and she's looking at the reader and she says, I repeat, dear sister, your moldy old tales are predictable. Dullsville. So boom, it, like there's that <laughs> hip dialogue coming in. And the title of her story is the perfect surf or how to make waves without really trying. So, <laughs> so the corn is up front and mm-hmm. this is just an incredibly fun story that ultimately again, doesn't have that great an ending, but the, the art style and, and the sheer mania of the main character and the silliness of it almost makes it my favorite story, even though I still, spoiler alert, got to go with the first one, got to go with the opener. <laughs> but it's just seeing all these like 60s or really 50s almost beach movie stereotypes, like the little buggy <laughs> with the surfboard sticking out of the back and everybody speaking in this in this Haney like teen lingo. You've got this this uh, what's going on is you got this one woman. <clears throat> she's dating a guy named Stanley. <laughs> and uh, so it's Carol and Stanley and she cannot get Stanley to stop surfing and pay attention to her. Right. So mm-hmm. the first panel there, she's trying to paddle in, he's paddling out. So right there in that tiny panel, the central conflict is on display. She's trying to head back to shore and he's going out again. And she says, Stanley, we've been surfing since sunrise. I'm getting tired of it. Can't we stop? And he's like, go ahead, Carol, baby. The surf's not just, you know, just not right yet. And he's <laughs> out. He goes and he, no matter what, she's all over him at the fire they're having on the beach, just clinging on him. <laughs> and, and he just won't stop talking about getting the perfect wave. It's just all about surfing, man. And it does nothing she can do. Mm-hmm. And at one night they're around the campfire and, you know, someone says, Hey, Stanley, did you hear about that private beach near the cove? Every night about this time, the surf's like glass and breaks real clean. And Stanley's on his feet. He's like, yeah, that's wild, man. And he's, he's gone. He's going to go get that perfect wave. And poor Carol, poor codependent Carol, she's going out after him. She's like, Stanley, it's the middle of the night. And she just she can't just let this guy go. She's off with a surfboard tucked under her arm, chasing after Stanley. And, of course... Stanley stops at the cove and, you know, at where this private beach is. And apparently he's checking in with whoever lives on that property. And this little <laughs> who looks like a witch mm-hmm. and I think literally has a fish stuck in her hat. The way one of the panels is drawn, <laughs> panel where she opens the door. I swear they intended to have a fish sticking out of her hat. Um, so she is definitely a sea hag. And there's a close-up of her on the next page that makes it even more, like, cartoonishly witchy. Mm -hmm. And she says, sure, you can use the beach, but you got to use our special surfboard. The thing looks like – if you just glance at it, you're like, why is it shaped like an arrow? But it's shaped like a devil's tail. Mm -hmm. You know, and so he goes out onto this private beach on, you know, a surfboard shaped like a devil's tail. Carol's paddling out after him. And they catch the perfect wave and it carries them out into the sea forever. So, because the perfect wave would never break. 
And mm -hmm. so Carol's stuck with this this maniac that she's into for some reason, and she's going to be surfing forever until they likely die of exposure or get eaten by a shark. <laughs> yeah, I love too when those other people are on the beach and they're like, "What's up with Carol? Why is she with this idiot? He won't stop talking about surfing." And it just makes me laugh because I'm thinking that's kind of how it would go in real life. You'd see this very nice, attractive woman throwing herself at some meathead. And everybody else is just like, what gives here? And I love his dialogue when he gets on the wave that takes him to wherever. Uh, what a groove. What a wave. This is my baby. <laughs> yeah, his, his final words in the story are, wow, groovy, out of sight. So they're just fitting them in you know, as many phrases <laughs> as they can before this story is over. They're like, this is Cynthia's story. We got to put some more hip lingo in here. Mm, yeah, and this was a Jack Sparling art. Uh, not sure on the uh, script, though. I couldn't find any credits on that. But Jack Sparling's one of those guys that I had never heard of until probably about, I'd say, 10 or 15 years ago because I was uh, a Marvel zombie for a very, very long time. I read literally no DC or very little DC, that, uh, especially none of the horror stuff from the Bronze Age. So, you know, it was a, a an eye-opener when I grabbed some, like I said, some back issues of Witching Hour and all the other anthology titles DC had in the Bronze Age. And I'm like wow, this is really cool art. And then, you know, either in the book or, you know, online you look it up and it's like, oh, it's guy Jack Sparling. I'm like, wow. And, you know, you look it up and yeah, he had quite a career too. And I love it. He, his style to me fits anthology horror perfectly. Yeah, he's like a romance comic artist that can cross over into the horror genre. And it's disarming because his stuff, you look at this story and it looks like something out of a classic romance comic. Mm -hmm. And then it has this sinister twist coming at the end, the creepy witch that lives on the beach, who I would just like to see a whole series about her, you know, like, is she, is she part of the family of, you know, Cynthia and, and her sisters, but his, what Sparling's really good at, and it's on full display here is character expressions, like facial expressions, because our boy Stanley is insane. <laughs> he has this look of mania on him, where he's almost like the beach blanket joker. You know, he's got his what? eyes popped open, yeah. big crazy smile, just the mania on his face, even before he gets on the cursed wave, is disturbing. And it's every panel he appears in. Yeah, that right. last page. Yeah. Yeah, that very last page. He looks like the creeper almost, like <laughs> laughing like a maniac. I mean, I thought, you know, he just looks like the other day I watched a, a part of a, a movie and I thought, when I saw this panel, I thought he looks like, uh, you know, he's all coked out like Tony Montana, this guy here. Yes. It is. Yes, it's it. God, that's it. <laughs> I can't believe I didn't hit that because Scarface is one of my favorite terrible <laughs> movies ever. Like, I have the I have the platinum edition on old school. DVD. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> and that thing, it, it did. It replaced the sound effects of the guns. So they actually sound like guns. So I was a little disappointed in that because mm. the original movie, the guns sound like like firecrackers like pop guns yeah that's it's terrible but one of the things that dvd has is an f-bomb counter oh boy as you're watching the movie literally if you turn <laughs> the option on this little counter goes up throughout wow oh that's yeah. funny <laughs> so i can't well, believe i didn't hit the scarface thing but kudos man and and the fact that he looks like the creeper he's even lit in a lot of scenes stanley is lit mm -hmm. And a light where he looks yellow, mm -hmm. tinged with green, and his hair full on green. So he's colored like the creeper. Yeah, that that top panel in the very last page of this story, that looks like Ditko Creeper to me. And I'm not even a, a huge fan of that. And not because I haven't, you know, I don't want to be or I think it sucks or whatever. It's just like I really haven't read much of that at all. But 
uh, that visual in my head when I think Ditko Creeper. It's the way that guy looks in that top panel, but that hadn't even come around yet. No, the Creeper is one of those characters where he's an incredibly cool character design that shouldn't work in search of a good character. I, I love the Creeper's design. I, I use him as my avatar on Patreon, but... <laughs> The old books, the old stories, they're not that great. And any take on the Creeper since then is pretty one note. Everyone tries to do their own spin on him. And then he goes back in the box, you know, like, okay, we renewed the copyright and we're done. Yeah. No one can figure out what's the story there. Because he's just another Ditko uh, reporter guy who at night goes out and beats up bad guys who are morally unsound, according to Steve Ditko. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, you know what? I think you need to write a story and it continues right off of this. This guy just goes out to sea and goes mad and becomes the creeper out to sea. And eventually he gets back to land somehow. (laughs) See, I think these two could become the monster or the threat or the curse in another horror story. Like they have to ride this wave forever and they're not allowed to die. And Carol just becomes more and more despondent until she's almost like a banshee of despair. (laughs) And, you know, her wailing can be heard. And then when it's too late, the wave gets closer and you hear the maniacal cackling of Stanley at the head of the wave. And they just look horrifying, you know, but I can't think of a context in which they show up yet. But I did (laughs) think about what their ultimate fate would be. And I'm like, oh, they become the menace in another horror story down the road. Mm, so I, I, I does think that think in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. I smell a brave and the bold story here. The, the new revised origin of silver Banshee and the creeper. And this is it. Carolyn, her buddy here. <laughs> oh my God. Something like that. I mean, mm-hmm. DC is, is rife with, especially these days, at least what they have going for them is they brought back, Hey, anything goes, it's the multiverse. So yeah. you could do that. If you work there, <laughs> I bet you could pitch that for at least a mini series or something and get away <laughs> for sure it's, so it's, it's our time billy that's <laughs> <laughs> our time to shine so any other thoughts on this one no like i said it was fun it's it, for me it's it's second place you know the ending wasn't like i said it was a little bit of a soft ending but i'm comparing it to that that note perfect ending of the first story this is easily a uh, close second place for me in the issue it's just too much fun. It You combine the bad lingo with the setting and that romance comic feel. And, mm-hmm. you know, one sneeze in the other direction. And this could have been my first place for the issue. Yeah, it's yeah, I think they're all pretty good. But I think that eternal hour definitely is, you know, like you said, because of the bizarre ending is definitely like, you know, third place or. You know, it's like 1A and 1B with the first uh, third story there. But yeah, now that I'm looking at this last framing sequence, like when you look at the three witches in that very first panel, it does look a little different to me. What do you think? Oh, yeah. Now that we're here, that is absolutely Neil Adams. Um, Because when you look at Cynthia and the second panel up top, that looks mm-hmm. exactly like Ms. Mystic from Continuity Comics. Oh, yeah. Yep. You're right. That's Neil. That that's not even a question. He's definitely aping Toth's design since mm-hmm. from the you know from the opening um framing sequence, the first few pages, and he's even kind of going for uh for Toth's word balloon shapes and lettering. Mm-hmm. So he's doing the job. This is kind of fitting into the narrative I sort of built in my head, um, 
he's he's just doing a fill-in job because uh, maybe Toth had momentarily disappeared and wouldn't talk to anybody, and they needed someone to do this last page and a half because he just couldn't be reached. But whatever it is, that is absolutely Toth because the first panel that shows one of the older stepsisters that looks like early Sienkiewicz when he mm-hmm. when he was an Adams clone. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, for real. That was, you know, like you said, that was earlier on in his career. But yeah, for sure. Yeah. As soon as I saw that top panel, I thought, yes, those witches, you can tell just by their facial features. That definitely does look not like Toth. And like you said, the more you think about it, it does look very much Adams. And But he's trying to do it in the same manner that Toth did the first part. So I'm wondering if he already had that to look at, you know, as reference. All right. Yeah. As far as this framing sequence, like uh, like we said, the Neil Adams call signs are there when you're looking for them. The faces are much more detailed and busy, but it's still beautiful work. It's still doing the job. It's it, it just I love following the creature out into the swamp. Like I'm ready to read every issue of this series based on just this one. I, I love the whole concept behind it. The execution's perfect. I, I've, I've stumbled onto this gem of one of my favorite genres of comics that for some reason I never encountered. I just never saw an issue of this thing. It probably, you know, with newsstand distribution being what it was mm-hmm. and, and how early this was published, I just missed out on it. And DC hasn't been so great at reprinting these things, but no, like I, I I'm hooked. I love it. I'm, I'm so glad that we picked this to check out that DC was wise enough to put it up on their app. And, that it's got so much great material in it. This this is a fun time, man. This is one of those comics you sit down with, and it's not going to change the world. It's it's not going to go down in history like Dark Knight Returns or something or Watchmen, but you're going to have fun on every single page of this thing. And for me, that's the kind of comic I'm looking for these days. I'm, I'm not looking for your magnum opus anymore. I want mm-hmm. something that makes me grin the whole time I'm reading it. And just makes me want to pick up another one when I'm done. And this is the prototype for that kind of issue for me. Yeah, for sure. I just want to have fun when I read a comic. Absolutely. Be entertained, have fun. And just, you know, for me, it's escapism. So if I can read one of these comics and, you know, it gets me uh, out of the real world, which, you know, sometimes isn't a whole lot of fun, but uh, and get you into this, you know, the world of comics that we love and just, you know, a crazy horror comic like this. It's It did its job for me. Like you said, even if it's not, you know, War and Peace, it can be. Just, you know, a single issue comic and 20, 30 minutes. And they always put me in a better mood for sure. Yeah, I mean, I love the what I consider, even though it's a big scroll on the last half page, I consider the final words of the issue to be one of the examples of one of my favorite things about old comics is big, stupid, goofy sound effects. So the final words are squish, 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 blip, sploop. Bibble. <laughs> just vote for it. I, like the the lettering here, the the sound effects, everything is a hundred percent fun, and there's tons of sound effects on the previous page. I literally think those things in my mind out loud whenever I read a comic, and I miss them. And I love reading old books because here I am back in the world of corny sound effects that I love. <laughs> yeah. Hey. So say we all. <laughs> so all right, Max. Well, like you said, you're on Weird Warriors, so. You know, if people are looking for you in the podcast, where can they find you out there in the ether? Well, we're on 
Apple Podcasts or iTunes or however people are saying it these days. You mm-hmm. can look up Warriors Podcast, and we are there. We have an awesome logo drawn by Bill Walco of the Hero Business, who is awesome. So he makes us look really good. Nice little eye-popping logo. Hard to confuse us with anyone else. We're on Twitter, at Weird War Pod. We have a Facebook page that my buddy Rich, my esteemed co-host and uh, slave-driving boss, runs. <laughs> and just on Facebook at Weird Warriors Podcast. He does a ton of work over there, loads it up with photos, you know, stories about war uh, books and, and, and anecdotes that he knows because he's the historian out of the two of us. I'm just a guy that reads goofy comics. So we've got the Facebook page. We've got Twitter. I'm on Twitter at Max Reads Comics. Uh, I'm just kind of a goofball over there. I, I talk about comics and whatever's on my mind. I I kind of have a blog, Max Reads Comics, but it's it barely gets updated anymore. So the main focus is hit at Weird War Pod and Weird Warriors Podcast on Facebook and Apple. And, you know, we'll take care of you, especially because I've got I've got rich uh, tying me to the mast. We're we're gonna keep it going. So yes, and send send feedback. Feedback, feedback, feedback. Every podcaster loves feedback, whether it's email or Twitter, you know, DMs, comments, whatever. And Rich, like you said, he does a great job at the Facebook page. I try to pop in there. I'm not as big a Facebooker as I am Twitter, but I try to pop in there sometimes and you know, just let him know uh, what he's doing there is appreciated because like you said, he does a really good job over there. Oh yeah, and you see how bad I am at promotion, like our Gmail address is weird warriors podcast at gmail.com billy um i I just read one of your emails the other night Mm -hmm. uh, because we were doing recording so you and martin had written in this time around and uh and martin actually kind of went at us (laughs) 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 he completely disagreed with us on on one of the issues and he kind of came at us which is always fun about martin he is not afraid to disagree with you (laughs) Mm -hmm. martin's a great guy yeah he's awesome. oh yeah He's fantastic. So yeah, write us at the Gmail address because that's my job to read and I need more people making me do stuff because I I tend towards inertia. <laughs> <laughs> me too. <laughs> yeah. So I, I need someone pushing me forward instead of running off to the next shiny thing that I like for 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hey, right there with you, buddy. So, all right. Well, like, thanks for joining me, Max. This was great, man. I appreciate you coming on the show and I uh, look forward to maybe down the road again, talking some more, you know, comics, horror comics or war comics or whatever. I definitely want to talk to you and Rich. Maybe this November would be cool for a war comics month. That would be great. Oh, I told Rich. And so that means it's going to have to happen. So <laughs> <laughs> he'll hold you to it. If he, if, he, if he, he won't let either of us out on this one. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I'm just as you could probably tell, I am the biggest nerd about comics. I, I I read the stuff I like. I have tons of enthusiasm for it. I will talk people to death, as Rich can tell you from road trips we've taken. And he has pretended to listen <laughs> to me on like. <laughs> I, I, I'm just, you know, I'm psyched to, to, to be with you. Uh, I'm, you know, was honored to be invited. Like I said, you ha- are on some of my favorite shows I've ever listened to since I got into this game as just a listener. So I'm happy to be here, man. I, I can't honestly believe it that I'm, I'm sitting here with uh, Doc Strange, you know, Billy Delicious. <laughs> And, and doing a guest spot with you. I'm, uh, I'm having a blast, man. So, and this book was fun. Uh, you know, you're gracious enough to do a show with someone who rambles like me. So that's always a badge of honor. 
<laughs> well, yeah. thank you for the compliments, and your check will be in the mail, so be ready. <laughs> I'll spend it on back issues of ROM. <laughs> there you go. Because I'm right, going to well. need the help. <laughs> yeah, for sure, right? Everybody needs a, a shiny uh, spaceman to help them out. Yeah, and those books are expensive now. Like I said, Ooh. man, I need the help because you can't just get ROM out of the bargain bins anymore. <laughs> nope. Yeah, there's not much other than some, you know, 90s, you know, Marvel and image that you can find in the cheap bins anymore that were overproduced. Yeah, because if, if you're looking for other things to talk about with me down the road, I am I am Bill Mantlo for life. So Ooh. <laughs> yep, I love Mantlo as well. Yep, he's That's one of my, my boy. favorites. Yep, love him. So all right, man. Well, like I said, thanks for being here. I appreciate it. You know, uh, thanks for coming on. And uh, I'll be back in a second to wrap things up. What do you get when a fantasy gaming horror sci-fi geek and an army veteran history nerd want to do a comic book related podcast? Why? You get the Weird Wars podcast, of course. Weird War Tales was a 124 issue DC comic book series published from 1971 to 1983. Along the way, we'll sidetrack on to an occasional special mission where we discuss an issue of a like themed comic book from a different title or publisher. There are also the rare road warriors episodes where we report on comic related road trips like conventions or visiting the homes and grave sites of comic greats we'll nitpick what the comics creative team got wrong and crawl about what they got right we'll also break down the facts behind the fiction in the stories which is sometimes quite weird in its own right even the letters page and our favorite ads can't escape our judgment just as we can't escape yours in our own dead letter office mailbag. Torpedo-eating dinosaurs. Haunted chateaus. Time-traveling rats. Zombie robots. Day-walking vampires. Gargoyle armies. And that's just in the first 20 Weird War Tales episodes. So, report for duty with the Weird Warriors podcast with Max and Rich, where we promise to make war no more. Okay, everybody, that wraps up episode 33. Uh, once again, I'd like to thank Max for coming on the show. Great guest, good guy. Definitely give him a follow on Twitter and definitely check out the Weird Warriors podcast. It is a blast. Uh, him and his partner, Rich, they do a great job with these comics. You know, they both have really good opinions and, you know, their own ways of looking at the comic, their own perspectives. They both do a really great job. Definitely check out their podcast, you know, Apple Podcasts, you know, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever you use. And then definitely go uh, check out their Facebook page as well because Rich downloads a ton of cool content and pictures and stuff there. So if you're a Facebooker, get over there and check that out too. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening and as always, take care.